Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's opening campaign speech in the 2024 election on Friday at Valley Forge, the historic site of the Revolutionary War in 1777, that was preceded by a lunch with a small group of historians at the White House on Wednesday. Joining us is an historian who attended the lunch, Sean Wilentz, the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History at Princeton University, where he has taught since 1979. His books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Age of Reagan, A History, 1974 to 2008, Bob Dylan in America, and The Politicians and the Egalitarians. His latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. Then, following the recent anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, we'll assess the cowardly caving in by corporate America and trade groups who three years ago pledged not to give campaign donations to insurrectionist members of Congress who voted against certifying the 2020 presidential election. Joining us is Anna Masolia, a researcher, editor and writer based in Washington, D.C. at the Center for Responsive Politics, where she studies foreign influence, digital and political ads, and is responsible for Open Secrets, Dark Money's database, as well as its foreign lobby watch. Trained as a lawyer, she was appointed by the U.S. Treasury Department to be a member of the Taxpayers Advocacy Panel, a federal advisory committee to the IRS, and has held additional roles with the D.C. Superior Court Senior Judges Chamber, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law Voting Rights Project, the D.C. Council Committee on Government Operations, the U.S. House of Representatives, and the Sunlight Foundation. Then finally, we'll get an assessment of the growing possibility of a wider war in the Middle East as the U.S. gears up to retaliate against the Houthis in Yemen and Israel provokes Hezbollah in Lebanon and speak with Dr. Trita Parsi, the Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He has served as a Professor of International Relations at Johns Hopkins University, New York University, Georgetown University, and George Washington University, and he is the co-founder and former President of the National Iranian American Council. His books include Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy, and we will discuss his article at The Nation, Will Israel Drag the U.S. into Another Ruinous War? And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising, as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. 
And joining us now, Sean Wilentz, who is the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History at Princeton University, where he has taught since 1979. His books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Age of Reagan, A History 1974 to 2008, Bob Dylan in America, and The Politicians and the Egalitarians. And his latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sean Wilentz. Great to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Sean. And you uh, were with a small group of historians who met with President Biden uh, for a lunch at the White House on Wednesday. And this was, of course, just ahead of his speech on Friday at Valley Forge in Pennsylvania, where in 1777, uh, George Washington hunkered down for a very cold winter with his troops, with the British having occupied Philadelphia nearby, which, of course, was then the U.S. capital. So can you make an analogy as an historian between what the U.S. revolutionaries were facing in terms of, uh, of a foreign power controlling their country and the extent to which we have a similar challenge to American democracy in this year, 2024, because as far as I'm concerned and through the research I've done, particularly from people in the intelligence world, is that Trump, to some extent, is also controlled by foreign powers in the form of Putin. And we just learned that in his two of his four years, he out of the $7.8 million he got from foreign governments while he was in the White House, uh, he got $5.5 million from China, which is an adversary. So is that a valid comparison? Wow. I mean, you know more than I do about all that money. Um, it's interesting. Well, let's, let's go back to Valley Forge first. Let me be an historian for a second, Ian. And, and you're right. I mean, 1777, that winter, as the winter before, um, was a very uh, low moment for the um, for the revolutionaries, for the patriots. Um, he was out in the middle of a you know middle of Pennsylvania. Um, the, the, there was uh, the, the enlistments were down. They were they were sitting. They had no supplies. It, it looked pretty pretty rough for the for the patriots. So I think that what um, one of the things that that the White House was doing in choosing Valley Forge as a kind of symbolic site um, was precisely that was to say, look, in, in democracy is at a crossroads. Democracy is endangered. He was trying to rally people, I think, in that speech. Once I heard it, he was trying to rally people behind the ba basic American democratic ideals um, and that were in, that are endangered now, much as they were in 1777. Um, and then, of course, he's, he's choosing General, then General Washington, but also President Washington, because as president, um, you know, people were more than happy, more than eager to make uh, something of a king out of George Washington and use that. And then when time came for him to leave, he left. So he uh, left office, unlike his predecessor. So those are the symbolic aspects, I think, of, 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 the, of the speech site on Friday. But as to the foreign power thing, yeah, I mean, this is something that people don't want to talk about but um, too much. But it's all connected. I mean, the threat to democracy is not simply internal via Trump, but Trump himself is in connection with the most nefarious authoritarian dictatorial powers in the world. And they would like nothing better than to see him reelected, Putin in particular. Um, you know, my friends in Ukraine, are, <laughs> they wish that they could vote in this election. Um, this this is this is a, a real threat to them. And uh, you have to see it in those global terms as you do, Ian. So in terms of what you just told us, Sean, about uh, what Washington and his army was going through and losing recruits, um, 
Tom Paine referred to uh, summer soldiers and sunshine patriots. Do we yeah, have the same yeah. problem here today with the... If you assume that Trump at best has 35% of, of America mm -hmm. uh, who are locked into his alternative universe based mm -hmm. on lies, that leaves 65%. Are the 65% mm -hmm. in this country, as Liz Cheney has recently said, sleepwalking into dictatorship? Well, I think we are sleepwalking, but I don't, I'm not sure that... Uh, the American people can't be awakened or the American majority can't be awakened. Um, I mean, we saw this in, in 2022 when uh, Biden gave a speech, not unlike the one that he gave, you know, this week. Um, he gave it in, in Philadelphia, I believe. And yeah, it was in Philadelphia on uh, September 1st, just before the midterms. And at the time, many, many bien-pensant types were saying, ah, this will never work, really. This is, American people don't really care about these you know, grand ideas about democracy and so forth. They, they care about, you know, employment, the price of gas, inflation, all the rest of it. Well, as it happened, the Democrats did extremely well in that in those midterms, much better than people had expected. And it, it was apparent from the polling that, in fact, people did respond to the president's appeal about, uh, the, you know, the threats to democracy. So I'm not so cynical about the American people as some are. Um, nor I just thought this morning, Tim, uh, Mitt Romney said that this, you know, attack um, of the presidents on Trump is a loser, that people have already processed January 6th and they've made up their minds and to go back to it. Well, he's not going back to it. That's the point. And what we've seen is a rolling coup d'etat by the Trump people going back at least as early as, as June 2020, when he said he would not respect the, the, the outcome of the election. That hasn't stopped. You know, it's, it's continuing. And in fact, it's only gotten deeper since the invasion of, of, of Ukraine by, by the Russians, um, it's now become even more of a threat to American democracy, indeed to world um, to world justice, <laughs> to the world itself. I mean, it's a bit as if we were, you know, in World War II, we didn't have Churchill, we didn't have Roosevelt. Um, that would That's what it would be like. It's an analogy, just an historical analogy, nothing more. But you see my point. So... Um, but my no, I think that I, you know, I, I still believe that um, a large number of the American people, once alerted to what's going on, will respond. Um, you know, the thing about being president is you have to actually be president. So he hasn't been able to say much about this at all. He only had to launch his, he only got to launch his campaign this week, which gives you know Trump a, a free ride to do whatever he wants to say whatever he wants. The problem, the real problem, I think you've also hit on though, Ian, is that. You know, it's 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 certainly not the 18th century anymore. It's not even the 1950s, you know, when Joe McCarthy could spread his conspiratorial lies, but eventually be exposed. The problem now is that with the social media and so forth, that 35 percent is locked in. You're not going to be able to undo any of that. And in a way, even though people don't necessarily go along with it in, in, you know, completely, still, it, it, it creates a, a what a, a stink around the entire race, which hurts Biden. And um, you can't undo that because it's because of the social media aspects of it, because it's just, you know, he just repeats the stuff, repeats the stuff. It's the big lie. It's kind of, you know, Goebbels' ideal dream. Right? You, know, you don't just uh, repeat the big lie, but you have the social media st structure in such a way as there's no way to refute it. Well, you brought up Goebbels. And of course, Hitler uh, said what he was going to do in his book, Mein Kampf. And uh, we know from Trump's former wife, Ivana, that he kept a copy of Hitler's speeches in a desk drawer. Yeah, but, well, but, but, but even if he does, I, I, you know, somehow I don't necessarily think that 
<laughs> Trump has read Mein Kampf. I don't think he reads much of anything. Um, no. But the point that, that you're making is an important one, which is that Hitler said exactly what he intended to do, not just in that book, but all right up to 1932-33. He said what he intended to do, and people did not take him seriously. Um, Trump says what he intends to do, and people think he's being a showman still. They still sort of think he's on The Apprentice. Take him absolutely seriously. When he says he's going to be a dictator for a day, and by the way, that doesn't mean he won't be a racist the second day or a you know authoritarian the third day, etc. But when he says that, he means it. He's not kidding around. That's not just for the you know yucks of his base. He really means all of this stuff. And then if you look at the Heritage Foundation and its plans, its 2024, 2025 plans, all the rest of it, he is out to destroy the American system of government, root and branch, and turn it into a dictatorship. He is saying that. Believe and he's also it. referring Believe to people like you and me as vermin. Well, that's right, but not just you and you and me, you know. Well, yeah. well I don't mean no. to make it personal, but I mean no, no, anybody, no. It, it, anybody that criticizes him, which is a lot exactly. of people. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's the language of it. But 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 quite apart from the rhetoric, Ian, look at the actual plans that are being laid to completely undo. I mean, a small I'll give you a very small example. If if Trump's elected president, he has control over the office of legal counsel inside the executive branch. The office of legal counsel basically sets the parameters or the or the perimeters or whatever of what can be done and what can't be done regarding executive power. <laughs> This is a hard block for him, and he intends to use it. Those are parts of his plans. I mean, it's as I say, I, I, I urge the sinners to go look at the Heritage Foundation um, uh, prospectus for what happens after a Trump re-election. There's also an excellent um, uh, piece by Barton Gelman in The Atlantic about what will happen legally if, if Trump gets re-elected. He's not just going to pardon himself. He's not just going to do all of that thing, all of, the, all of those things. He is going to transform this country, and he intends to do so. He has said he's going to do so. The plans are there for him to do so, to do so structurally and to do it from top to bottom. Um, those are the stakes, folks, and I think that people will uh, will respond to that once it's finally pointed out to them clearly. Another little point, I've got to say, this has to do with the media. Um, you know, I turn on the TV every once in a while, and I watch CNN and MSNBC and so forth, and they're all treating this 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 primary process with the Republicans as if it's normal, you know, as, as if, you know, we're having an Iowa primary and gee whiz, can, can is it possible that Haley, um, uh, the Nikki Haley could possibly overtake John? This is crazy. This is nuts. There is no Republican Party. It doesn't exist. It's not that the Republican Party is different. It doesn't exist anymore. Parties come and go in American history. You know, uh, the Whig Party came and went. Um, the old Federalist Party came and went. The Republican Party is gone. It does not exist. People have to understand that as well. And the coverage of the politics by the media, as long as it's stuck in that old-fashioned framework, is giving a completely misleading idea of what's going on in, 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 in this country, in its politics. We have an authoritarian movement being led by a class A, brilliantly class A demagogue, who is threatening to, to uh, overturn the country. That's what we're up against. It's not a normal election. That has to be pointed out. But that said, Sean Wilentz, what Biden said on Friday at Valley Forge was pretty mild. Uh, he said, Donald Trump's campaign is about him, not America, not you. Donald Trump's campaign is obsessed with the past, not the future. He's willing to sacrifice our democracy. Is uh, Biden uh, going to go, and the Democrats, are they going to go 
as far as you just went and really yeah, I, I, I believe they will. Um, but, you know, it's not only up to the president it's because he can do what he does. It's up to all of us. You know, it's, it's up to everyone who has any platform whatsoever to make this clear um, and to break through the media's what um, inertia um, in, in, in covering all of this. Um, no, I, I think it will come out. Look, this was the first speech by the president. And uh, it was, you know, it's funny. I mean, you and I thought it was, you know, yes, I, I wouldn't say it was mild, but I say it was it was um, tempered. Um, you know, the, the, the coverage of it is as if, you know, you call the speech blistering and, you know, the, the most extraordinary thing that anybody's ever heard, blah, blah. All right. So uh, people had take time to catch up. What I'm saying is that this was the first speech and that it, it will get it will get you know, Trump will react. The, I think the stakes of this will become clearer as the uh, as the as the um, as the campaign develops. At least I hope so. Um, but that that is that is the responsibility for that rests not just with the White House, but it, it, it rests with all of us who comment about politics, who have things to say about politics, and who fortunately has still have a platform to to say so. We have to make that point as well. So, just in the last minute, then, Sean, uh, I know you can't talk about what happened at the meeting on Wednesday with the president, the lunch at the White House, but. What about just Biden himself? I mean, his vulnerability mm -hmm. is his age and the Republicans yeah. will make as much out of that as possible. And a lot of Democrats, people I know, friends of mine, they're yeah. quite distressed about his age. Um, yeah. was, did he seem sharp and, and on top of things? Yeah, he did. I mean, you know, he's, 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 not, he's not 30, he's not 60, he, he's 80, whatever it is. Um, but... But no, he's 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 sharp. I mean, all the the, the palaver you hear about him being, you know, over the top or out of it or what have you, that's just not there. I I dare say he's in much better physical shape and mental shape than than his adversary. Um, people don't talk about the fact that you've got a guy who's obese and and you know could probably have a coronary at any moment, um, let alone who who can't you know who, who thinks in insults and nothing else. I mean, you know, they're entertaining, but they're crazy in in comparison. So no, I, the, the president was fine. He was, um, you know, he, he like I say, he's not he's not a younger man, but you know, older people have something else, which is that. You know, they don't react right away. They listen. They they reason. They have experience. That's all there for him. And um, I wish the White House would actually make more out of that uh, side of him. Um, everybody is nervous. Everybody's scared. This is, you know, our side of things is we're, we're, we're you know, more prone to bedwetting than the other side seems to be. But that's OK. Um, the fact is that he's fine um, and he's going to run. A, I think he's going to run a strong campaign. The speech that he gave on Friday gave an indication of what is most important to him. I think that's right. Um, I mean, in our conversations, I can't go into specifics, but I can say that it's very clear that this is something that is, you know, to the bottom of his soul, really. And uh, it's why he, he he got into it in the first place. I'm not so sure he really wanted to be president again. They all do. They're all egomaniacs to a certain extent. But, but you know, he got in, into it because of Charlottesville. And because he was genuinely frightened and he genuinely thought that nobody else could beat Trump. And by the way, he might have been right about that, but he did beat him. And, you know, that's uh, that's a reason to go forward. It was, it's just one other thing, though, I think it's going to re also rely on other people to step up. And I don't mean us. I mean, others in politics. It's a matter of people like, you know, um, um, the, the House uh, Minority Leader, Hakeem um, Jeffries, um, others, Gavin Newsom, all the rest. Everybody's going to have to rally around. 
And I think that will make him look stronger. It will make him less look less like a lonely figure. If we're all in this together and he's the man who can do it, then I think we can get someplace. Well, Sean Valencia, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian, as ever. Well, thank you, Sean. And again, I've been speaking with Sean Valencia, who's the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History at Princeton University. His books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Age of Reagan, A History, 1974 to 2008, Bob Dylan in America, and The Politicians and the Egalitarians. And his latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. We're going to take a brief station break, and we'll be back following the recent anniversary of the January 6th insurrection with an assessment of the cowardly caving in by corporate America and trade groups who three years ago pledged not to give campaign donations to insurrectionist members of Congress who voted against certifying the 2020 presidential election. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anna Masolia, who is a researcher, editor, and writer based in Washington, D.C. at the Center for Responsive Politics, where she studies foreign influence, digital, and political ads, and is responsible for Open Secrets Dark Money Data, as well as its Foreign Lobby Watch. Trained as a lawyer, she was appointed to the U.S. Treasury Department to be a member of the Taxpayer Advocacy Panel, a federal advisory committee to the IRS, and has held additional roles with the D.C. Superior Court Senior Judges Chambers, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law Voting Rights Project, the D.C. Council Committee on Government Operations, the U.S. House of Representatives, and the Sunlight Foundation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anna Masolia. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And we just learned a couple of days ago, Anna, uh, and of course, Saturday was the anniversary of January the 6th, uh, which obviously I wanted to talk to you about. And President Biden made an important speech uh, launching his, uh, his re-election campaign on Friday at Valley Forge, which, of course, is a very symbolic location. But let's just deal with what we learned last week, and that is that the Trump family made $7.8 million while in office, in the White House itself, in contrast to a tax on Hunter Biden trying to link him to his father for whatever it is. They've never proven anything. They keep throwing out allegations. But the long and the short of it is, is that even these allegations, as crazy and unproven as they are, Biden never did anything while he was in office like Trump did when he was actually in the Oval Office, making $7.8 million. What I think is not being covered sufficiently is that the House of Representatives, the Democrats on the House Oversight Committee, only had access to two years of Trump's financial records from Mazars, the accountants. So it's only two years of Trump's four years. So probably and reasonably, Trump probably made at least $15 million in the four years he did. And we already know from the recent reporting of the $7.8 million that $5.5 million came from China, which is an adversary. So what do you think the real figures are? 
Well, it's hard to know the real totals. Just looking at the report that came out uh, last week, put together by the Democrats on the House Oversight Committee, we're already seeing more money, more detail than really we had previously known. Uh, when we were looking at Open Secrets, we were tracking Trump's uh, pay payments from foreign businesses as well as his own foreign businesses. So there, so there are a few different components here, one being looking at the personal financial disclosures, what Trump was legally required to disclose, which is, again, only a glimpse into his total financial situation. Trump has streams of revenue coming in, not just through his businesses and payments from foreign interest individuals who are staying at the hotels, but also his own businesses in other countries that are also making money. And so it really depends how you slice and dice the numbers, what that total would be. But we're very confident that it is just millions of dollars. Um, and in the case of looking at his revenue from his foreign located businesses, hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, there's no question that Trump is in violation of the Constitution in terms of the Emoluments Act, isn't he? That would be a bit outside of the scope of what our research showed, but we can certainly say without a doubt that Trump had made hundreds of millions of dollars from his interests in foreign companies just during the time since he started running for office during the 2016 election, much of that during the time he was in the White House, uh, as well as additional funds through payments from foreign interests who stayed at his properties within the United States and across the world. One of the things that we were seeing at Open Secrets while we were tracking this was lobbying campaigns, uh, foreign government officials and others staying at Trump hotels and seeing that as almost a backdoor to being able to get influence within the U.S. government. Of course, the D.C. Trump Hotel is no longer op operational. However, Trump still has several other hotels, resorts and businesses that are are continuing to see payments from foreign interests, as well as from political campaigns of people trying to cozy up to the former president. Well, the Constitution specifies in terms of emoluments that you can't hold federal office and take money from foreign princes and potentates. Well, <laughs> there's a foreign prince known as Mohammed bin Salman who gave Jared Kushner $2 billion at least and gave the former Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin a billion dollars. We don't know what they got that money in exchange for, but it obviously had something to do with their tenure in the Trump administration. So that's why I bring up emoluments. It seems to be pretty glaring. That is one of the big questions that's been raised. And there's also so many different streams of income that it's hard to pinpoint just one thing to look at for that. So, for example, again, the streams of income from different foreign entities and foreign individuals who are staying at his hotels or frequenting his businesses, as well as his businesses in other countries that are bringing in money. And then, of course, there's the less easily quantifiable inf um, information and benefits to Trump, where it's not just the money that they're paying him for these rooms, not the money that he's making from these foreign businesses, but also a number of dynamics that are happening behind the scenes where what benefit are they providing? Are they getting access to Trump in those situations? And in certain circumstances where we're looking at Mar-a-Lago, where we're looking at his uh, New Jersey property, we are seeing Trump not just making money from these exchanges, but also being physically available and having his family and other officials available to these individuals who are frequenting his properties. 
Uh, of course, Trump's businesses did report some of their money from foreign governments during his time in office and paid the United States Treasury the, quote, profits that they were getting from foreign governments during that time. However, that was just hundreds of thousands of dollars versus the millions of dollars we're seeing in, this, uh, in the new report and hundreds of millions of dollars from his additional interests in foreign con countries. So, Anna, let's talk about uh, the what happened shortly after the violent mob stormed the Capitol on January the 6th of 2021. And since uh, Saturday, of course, was the anniversary, a lot of U.S. corporations and trade groups were outraged, as most people were, by these attacks. And they pledged to stop giving donations, particularly to politicians who voted against certifying the 2020 presidential elections. You're quoted in the New York Times saying that companies quote, companies pledged to pull back, but we have not seen that play out. And apparently donations from the Fortune 500 companies and about 70 trade associations to these election deniers in Congress decreased only 10 percent uh, in the 2022 election cycle compared to 2020. So and that more than 250 companies and industry groups increased donations uh, to those lawmakers um, who tried to essentially go along with the Stop the Steel coup. So this seems to be something that should be highlighted, but it sort of reminds me of what happened politically too when you had people like Kevin McCarthy and the minority leader of the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell, going public shortly after January the 6th condemning Trump and then then turning around and you know, kneeling at his feet and kissing the ring. So is, is that the same? Did the same thing happen with corporate America? Yes, you're hitting the nail on the head with that, where many of the pledges that we saw after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol were short lived. Uh, Shortly after there, we saw many corporations, in particular Fortune 500 companies, businesses, even trade associations affiliated with them coming out and saying they would either stop giving entirely to uh, to individuals who were in Congress who had voted against the certification of the 2020 election results or who were otherwise involved. We saw other corporations pledging to at least reevaluate their PAC giving or even stop giving entirely through their corporate PACs. But that was very short-lived where just months and in some cases weeks after this, we saw some companies resume their giving through their corporate PACs. And so since then, we've seen over $108 million going just from these companies, their, or from their corporate the corporate PACs affiliated with these companies, as well as business trade associations going to election objectors in Congress. And this is something that we've seen continue over the last three years where that brief lull after the January 6th attack did not last. So... What's happening then to the country at large? If corporate America and the Republican Party are just accepting denial, I know, you know, the right-wing media like Fox keep pushing this narrative, which comes from Stop the Steal. Trump himself apparently knew that he lost, but then he couldn't face the, the loss because he's psychologically incapable of accepting being a loser, which he really is, and he's a fraud, and, and he always has been. But so this is about essentially about the psychological state of one man determining the fate of America, which is just bizarre, to say the least. So here you have a man who couldn't accept defeat, has hoisted this notion that he won when he lost, and yet it's metastasized into a core belief in the Republican Party, and about 30% of the country at least 
believes it. And this apparently includes corporate America. So what happened? Uh, I know this is, I'm getting into psychological territory here, but I'm just mystified as to how Trump has pulled this off. It's a good question. One of the things with corporate America that I think is an important distinction is that though these com- companies, pa- corporate PACs, are giving to these specific individuals who in Congress who voted against certification of the election, that's not necessarily an endorsement of them, though it's hard to see how you can take it as not as being much else other than they're giving to both sides of the aisle in some cases by these companies. But the fact that these contributions have resumed is at the very least a reflection that members of Congress, the election objectors who voted against that certification are no longer considered ostracized. They're not considered to be on a blacklist for these companies. And so it's becoming more normalized to continue this giving. And they're no longer having to go through dark money groups or other types of organizations in order to skirt these uh, disclosures. They're able to more openly embrace these contributions now as it becomes the norm. And there's a lot of questions going into the 2024 election cycle about whether this will continue. So just in the last few minutes, then, Anna, what can be done? I mean, obviously, you're trying to shed light on this cowardice in terms of social responsibility on the part of corporate America. And as we pointed out, it sort of ties in with the general massive lie that's been hoisted, which you know, when a lie becomes so central to a political campaign as it is to Trump's re-election campaign, it's it's a reflection on the country itself and its own sort of sanity, or at least its own honesty. Well, at Open Secrets, we think it's really important to be able to put this information out there to make sure that the average American, no matter where they are on the political spectrum, is able to have the complete picture. And I think a lot of people aren't aware of this money exchanging hands, aren't aware of what's happening behind the scenes as influence is being purchased in Washington, D.C., as all of these different conspiracy theories are spreading. And I think making sure that the facts, the get out there and the people are actually able to access them to have this additional knowledge so that they're making informed decisions when they go to the ballot box as well as just about their elected uh, representatives and about legislation in general i think it's just so important so is this a campaign issue i mean president biden laid laid out his campaign focus at least his priorities in a speech on friday at valley forge so Do you feel that uh, this is a part of what should be in the 2024 campaign? I don't know if I would say whether it should or shouldn't be, but it is certainly becoming a permeating issue both with the presidential election as well as with congressional elections, and even to some extent trickling down to the state level where we're looking at secretary of state races, attorneys general races, where issues of certifying elections are continuing to play a part and with a forward looking, looking forward at least until to the next election cycle of how that will play out with the different secretaries of state across the country. But in particular with congressional races, we're already seeing it becoming an issue of people trying to oppose or potentially challenge different election objectors, others coming in and being motivated by the January 6th attack to be able to uh, take on additional political responsibility and to be able to prevent similar situations from happening in the future. So it's certainly going to play out, I think, at all levels of elections. Well, if I had my way, Anna, I'd, if I was the Biden administration, I'd launch a campaign of naming and shaming corporations that support election-denying politicians. Uh, that would get the attention of corporate America, but <laughs> I guess 
Nobody's listening to me. So. <laughs> I mean, I guess one thing that's, a hard, that's hard with that as well is that corporate America is not necessarily just funneling money to election objectors. You're also seeing political campaigns at the presidential level, including Biden's, also benefiting from some of these same corporations. So you got into some sticky territory there. Right, of course, of course. Well, Anna, I thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Anna Masolia, who's a researcher, editor, and writer based in Washington, D.C., at the Center for Responsive Politics, where she studies foreign influence, digital and political ads, and is responsible for Open Secrets Dark Money Data, as well as its foreign lobby watch. Trained as a lawyer, she was appointed by the U.S. Treasury Department to be a member of the Taxpayer Advocacy Panel, a federal advisory committee to the, U- to the IRS, and has held several roles in the D.C. Superior Court Senior Judges Chambers, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, Voting Rights Project, the D.C. Council Committee on Government Oversight, the U.S. House of Representatives, and the Sunlight Foundation. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of the growing possibility of a wider war in the Middle East as the U.S. gears up to retaliate against the Houthis in Yemen and Israel provokes Hezbollah in Lebanon. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Trita Parsi, who's the Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He has served as a Professor of International Relations at Johns Hopkins University, New York University, Georgetown University, and George Washington University. And he's the co-founder and former president of the National Iranian American Council. His books include Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Iran, Israel, and the United States, and Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. And he has an article at The Nation, Will Israel Drag the U.S. into Another Ruinous War? Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Trita Parsi. Thank you. So it doesn't look good, does it, in the region in terms of the possibility of a widening war as a result of the war in Gaza with both Hezbollah in the north and now the Houthis in Yemen. If you were giving odds, Trita, what would you say? It's very difficult to give odds, but I think one thing that is clear is that over time we've only moved closer to um, uh, this escalation towards a full-scale war. And unless there is a shift in policy, particularly on what's happening in Gaza, then we will continue to drift in the direction uh, of a confrontation. And you mentioned two of the fronts which is the Lebanese-Israeli border, uh, what's happening in the Red Sea with the Houthis. But there's also, of course, a third one, uh, which actually may end up being one of the more important ones, which is Iraqi and, Israel- and Syrian militias that have been attacking U.S. troops in Iraq and in Syria. So on all of these different fronts, we're seeing uh, escalation, further tension. And one of the things that I'm quite stunned to see that in the mainstream media, at least, there's really no reporting on is that all of these groups demand one thing, which is a ceasefire in Gaza. And when there was a ceasefire in Gaza, there was uh, the attacks against U.S. troops in Iraq, for instance, went down to zero, completely stopped. The Houthis also reduced their attacks. There's only one attack 
that we can attribute clearly to the Houthis during that six-day period. Um, so it's quite clear that there is a decent chance that we will be able to avoid this escalation towards a full-scale war if there is a ceasefire in Gaza. But the manner in which the Biden administration is looking at it is to pursue every avenue except a ceasefire in Gaza. Well, I've spoken to a few specialists on the region, and many think that that Netanyahu wants an escalation, that because the Israelis have mobilized so many soldiers, that this, according to some of the suspicions, is that uh, this is the time to strike. And we know that Netanyahu has, for the longest time, has wanted to either drag the Americans into war against Iran or you know, have a full-on confrontation with Iran. So who's stirring the pot here, the Israelis or the Iranians, given that they have influence over the Houthis and certainly over the militias in Iraq and in Syria? Well, according to the Biden administration itself, the Israelis wanted to go after Hezbollah and extend the war into Lebanon already on day one. Uh, and the Biden administration credits itself for having thwarted that. It seems like we're back to square one now, however, with the Israelis escalating matters with the uh, Lebanese. Uh, and we saw the assassination in, in Beirut, which was a significant escalation. There's unfortunately been a steady escalation between Israel and, uh, and Hezbollah since October 7th, with numerous attacks by Hezbollah into Israel as well. But it's been in the border areas. It's not deep into Israel. And the Israelis have been striking Lebanon, but not particularly deep either. The strike in Beirut was different because it went much, much deeper into um, uh, Lebanese territory. Uh, and now we've seen some counterstrikes by Hezbollah on Saturday morning against Israel. But so from the very beginning, the Israelis did have that in mind, uh, according to the Biden administration. Now we're seeing that that is, again, the direction they're going. And, and as you pointed out, particularly when it comes to a conflict between Israel and Iran or the U.S. and Iran, the Israelis have been pushing for this for more than 25 years, wanting to see the United States to go to war with Iran in order to take out Iran's nuclear program, cut down Iran's conventional capabilities significantly, ruin any chance of a rapprochement between the U.S. and Iran for the foreseeable future, and by that, of course, also weaken Iran's allies in the region. And all of that would amount to uh, securing a balance in the region that is much, much more beneficial to Israel. Almost every American president has pushed back against this, even Trump at one point did. But now the Israelis find themselves with probably the most deferential American president when it comes to Israeli war plans. And they may very well think that this is their last big chance to be able to get the war with Iran that Netanyahu in particular has been seeking for more than 20 years. So let's focus then on the assertion that Biden is the most def deferential U.S. president towards Israel. Now, what, what happened then shortly after the October 7th attack when Biden showed up in Israel and did the famous hug, uh, embrace of Netanyahu? Was that calculus there that he was satisfying the donors at the risk of losing a part of his base, not just the Arab-American vote in Michigan, but also young Democrats who are very disenchanted about what's happening in Gaza. Was that the calculus, that it was more important to keep the donors on side? And maybe I don't know whether or not they were aware at the time of the backlash that would happen. Maybe they didn't know about the ferocity of the Israeli attack, but they should have assumed so, shouldn't they? 
So people I have spoken to leave the very strong impression that certainly consideration of the donors have always been a very, very key consideration of the Biden administration when it comes to its dealings with uh, Israel and with the Netanyahu government. And we've seen that also play out in the manner that the Biden administration pursued the Iran deal, which um, is, remains dead, uh, not entirely at the fault of the Biden administration, but several significant early mistakes were committed by the Biden administration. And its consideration of its relations with Israel was a key factor for that. When it comes to uh, the rest of the base, my understanding and from what I've heard, it wasn't even a consideration because it was a massive miscalculation. They did not at all expect that there would be such a ferocious reaction to the ferocious attacks uh, by Israel in Gaza. I think the, the Biden administration fully understood the bloodbath that would be ensuing, particularly mindful of the fact that they've really not put any particularly um, strong pressure on the Israelis to hold back. Uh, I mean, we're talking about 10,000 um, tons of weapons that have been shipped to Israel by the Biden administration since the beginning of uh, the war. Moreover, sending these 2,000 pound uh, bunker bombs that the Israelis are using on neighborhoods in uh, uh, Gaza that is killing everyone within 300 feet. Those are not in any way, shape or form targeted attacks. The US knows very well what it is doing when it's providing these things. The miscalculation was the belief that much of the base would essentially be okay with Biden facilitating a genocide in Gaza. But what I don't understand, uh, Trita, is that Biden, I thought, is wary of Netanyahu, or if, if not wary of him, he simply doesn't like him and doesn't trust him. I mean, you recall that when they met recently at the United Nations, just before they started their little photo op, Biden crossed himself as though he was, you know, exercising the devil. So what's going on with the relationship? Why? What's going on with Biden if he doesn't like Netanyahu, which is, I think, a, a pretty safe assumption? Why is he, has he aligned himself with him so closely? I don't think there's a single American senior politician who has a reputation of liking Netanyahu. So in that sense, Biden is no different from the others. Um, none of them like him. But Biden has a history of being deferential to Netanyahu. He has a history of even undermining the Obama administration's pressure on uh, Netanyahu um, earlier during the Obama years, of course, and, and positioning himself, himself very explicitly as Netanyahu and Israel's best ally within that administration. So the fact that he doesn't like him is not necessarily a major factor in these calculations. None of the major American politicians have liked him. Most of them have, to various degrees, been deferential, none as much as Biden. And, and, and let, me, let me say one thing on that, if I could. Uh, for instance, take a look at how the Trump administration really bent over backwards for the Netanyahu government and moved the embassy to Jerusalem, recognized Israel's annexation of the Golan Heights, um, and then beyond that, went for the uh, Abram Accords, luring these Arab countries and uh, into normalizing relations with Israel with massive American concessions, recognizing Morocco's annexation of the Western Sahara, 
getting the Sudanese out of the terrorist list, F-35s to the UAE. Yet none of them, none of these concessions were at the magnitude of what Biden was considering offering the Saudis, who he truly does not like, particularly MBS, but he was considering offering the Saudis security guarantees, Article 5 level security guarantees, as well as handing over to the Saudis full control of the new, uh, fuel cycle and nuclear enrichment. Even Trump never even considered these levels of concessions. Well, let's turn to Iran in this equation. What is Iran up to, given that the Houthis' activity in the Red Sea have shut down a lot of global shipping and 30% of, uh, of global supply chain traffic goes through the Red Sea, and now it has to go around uh, the tip of Africa, and there's also problems with the Panama Canal because of a drought. So what is the strategy there on the part of Iran if they are, uh, in fact, manipulating a, pro- a proxy? Well, I, I don't think the Houthis are a proxy of Iran. The Houthis pursue their own policies. They're definitely supported by Iran. They're definitely armed and trained by Iran. But it's very clear that the Houthis are not controlled by Iran, uh, both during the Yemeni civil war, but also just in these last couple of weeks. We actually have seen the Houthis openly criticize Iran and accuse Iran of being weak and not striking back at Israel as strongly as um, the Houthis believe Iran needs to do, particularly after the Israelis killed an Iranian general in Damascus through another assassination. But what Iran is doing in the background, Iran and Israel have been involved in this geostrategic battle for more than uh, 25, 30 years now. And the Iranians are definitely trying to weaken Israel and building up its capabilities and building up its alliances in order to be able to counter Israel um, and, uh, and weaken Israel's military um, domination in the region. So that has always been going on for the last uh, couple of decades. Within the context of what's happening right now is that they have been uh, strengthening Hezbollah, the Iraqi militias, Syrian militias, and of course the Houthis. Through the Houthis, within this coalition that they call the Axis of Resistance, the Iranians have now a new, very, very valuable asset from their perspective. Because this kind of came a little bit out of left field in which the Houthis opened up this additional front of pressure on Israel through these attacks in the Red Sea. And this is particularly problematic for the Israelis because this has really had a very significant economic cost on the Israelis because of the lack of shipping uh, that is now going through the Red Sea to Israel, but also because the Israelis have a much harder time striking at the Houthis. They have less uh, intelligence on the Houthis compared to, for instance, the very significant intelligence they have uh, of Hezbollah and the, the geographic proximity that makes it much easier for the Israelis to, to strike at Hezbollah. So this has created an additional circle, uh, uh, buffer between Israel and Iran uh, from the Iranian perspective. Uh, but the question is, to what end? At least in the short term, the end of all of these has been to pressure Israel to stop its bombardment of Gaza. From the Israeli perspective, of course, that means that Hamas is uh, left off the hook and that Hamas will be able to regroup, according to the Israelis, and continue to be an entity that threatens Israel. But there's also another perspective in Israel, which is to say that Israel doesn't have the capability to completely take out um, uh, Hamas militarily, that it's coming at a too high of a cost and it ultimately will fail anyways. 
And this perspective is not coming from some fringe parts. This is what Ehud Olmert, the former prime minister of Israel, wrote in the Haaretz just about 10 days ago. The opening sentence of his op-ed is that the chances of taking out Hezbollah militarily is nil. Sorry, uh, taking out Hamas uh, militarily is nil. Um, so the, the question is as to whether a, a, a ceasefire truly would be the type of uh, defeat for Israel that the Israelis are afraid of, mindful of the fact that there is very strong arguments that says that as Israel continues this war, as the uh, civilian toll increases, as it becomes increasingly clear that even with the significant damage on Gaza, Hamas will still remain there, in fact, in some ways may even become strengthened, that is actually better for Israel itself to find a face-saving exit out of this rather than continuing a war that it will not be able to win. Well, I spoke the other day with a, an Israeli scholar who suggested that, I mean, if you go back, for example, to the Iranian Revolution, I remember talking to George Kennan at the time, and he advised the Carter administration when the hostages were taken at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran to declare war on Iran, not to actually pull the trigger and go to a full-scale war, but at least to put them on notice that you know, taking embassies is causes bellow under international law. The point being, I guess, that revenge is a dish best served cold and that the Israelis should never have gone to war. They should have kept their options open and maybe you know, started to targeting the Hamas leadership who were responsible for the brutal and heinous attack on largely on Israeli civilians on October the 7th. So what do you make of that theory? It's obviously pointless in a sense that it's not happening. But were there other options or is this just a case of just blind rage and fury? Which after all, when Biden did go to Israel shortly after October the 7th, he did make the point that after 9-11, the U.S. did some irrational stuff that was counterproductive. Well, I mean, if you follow the Israeli debate itself, there's plenty of voices that are saying that there is no strategy here, that did it. this is blind rage and fury. Um, but you also have voices inside of Israel saying that it should be just blind uh, uh, rage and fury, that this is what needs to be done, finish them off once and for all. I mean, one of the challenges and problems that have now occurred in Israel is that a conclusion has been drawn that Israel was wrong in thinking that it could just manage uh, what they perceive to be the threat from Hamas, and that every two years they could just go and mow the lawn, bomb Gaza. They would suffer some attacks, but it, it wouldn't be so significant. So this whole situation was manageable. I think concluding that that was not manageable is correct, but the conclusion after that that the Israelis have drawn is, in my view, an even more dangerous one, which is it's not to come to the conclusion that actually you're never going to have real peace and real security unless you have uh, a two-state solution in which the type of suffering and discrimination that the Palestinians are suffering from that turns them to Hamas is eliminated and as a result you will have a de-radicalization of the Palestinian society, something that we're right now seeing the exact opposite of. Instead, the conclusion has been it was a mistake to think you can manage it. You have to eliminate the threat. And then this has also then been extrapolated to Hezbollah with the argument Israel cannot risk accepting living next to Hezbollah, mindful of what Hamas did, because if it, Hezbollah were to do the same thing, it would be even worse. So instead, um, 
there needs to be uh, a military campaign that pushes Hezbollah much deeper into Lebanon in order to create some sort of a buffer. So again, it's not about managing the threats, it's about eliminating these threats. That is not a possible strategy. That will not be achieved. It will put Israel in endless war, even worse so than it has been so far. And the question is, should the United States sign up for this and continue to support something that so clearly will not be working, so clearly has undermined the U.S.'s own international standing um, um, uh, for supporting these type of policies? So, Trita Parsi, just in closing, uh, just turning to Iran itself, some analysts say that the regime... Uh, of Ayatollah Khamenei has never been more vulnerable. We know that they shut down the revolution that was led by women in a brutal way, but that's got to be simmering under the surface. And, of course, there was the bombing of the procession at the fourth anniversary of of the assassination of General Soleimani, which apparently was conducted by the Islamic State. So they're having, you know, because Israel has targeted a lot of the assassinations of a lot of nuclear scientists, etc. So there seems to be a lot of, shall we say, a lot of problems in terms of holding on to power on the part of the IRGC and how many son wants to take over and he doesn't have any sort of qualifications as, as a spiritual leader, not that they're particularly spiritual. Many people describe the mullahs in Iran as a bunch of kleptocrats in robes. So where would you say the regime is in terms of it certainly doesn't have the popularity but it has control yes i think unfortunately um the idea that they're extremely weak right now may be a bit uh exaggerated without a doubt their unpopularity has probably never been this high their control is increasingly based on uh physical and terror uh control in terms of repression as well as an elimination of viable alternatives and and here i think some of the groups in the diaspora have actually been very effective in helping the regime um, uh, eliminate uh, reasonable and attractive uh, alternatives so you have a population that now is enraged it is extremely negative towards the regime but also completely hopeless they don't see any hope for any change uh, in the short term So I don't foresee anything in particular happening in the short term right now. In the long term, I think the survivability of this regime is extremely weak. But then again, that's the assessment that has been for the last few decades. And so far, they have managed to survive. Um, If there is, I I think it's interesting to see how far the Iranians have gone and tried to avoid getting directly involved in this war. Um, and instead fighting Israel indirectly through their allies, etc. Their own red line is that they wouldn't even get involved if Israel goes into Lebanon. It has to be an attack on Iranian soil. I think that is partly because of a strategic calculation that they're going to be in a disadvantage if they actually engage in direct warfare with Israel and the United States. But I think it's also because of a realization on their end that they're so unpopular that even uh, a war would probably not help them in their popularity. They may end up in a very similar situation as Netanyahu. The population rallies around the country, but doesn't rally around the leader, which is exactly what we've seen in Israel. Netanyahu's unpopularity has increased, while at the same time there is a rallying around the flag uh, phenomenon in Israel. Well, Dr. Trita Parsi, I thank you very much for joining us here today. 
My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Trita Parsi, who is the Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He has served as a Professor of International Relations at Johns Hopkins University, New York University, Georgetown University, and George Washington University, and is the co-founder and former president of the National Iranian American Council. And his books include Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. And he has an article at The Nation, Will Israel Drag the U.S. into Another Ruinous War? This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.